Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Our spiritual life can be a precious living truth inside of us if we develop a deep and ultimate connection with our spiritual path. Jetsama explains to us that this is not easy to do because our society is materialistic and removed from the natural current of life. Today, um, we will continue on a trend that we are uh, moving across, and, and the trend is trying to connect with and trying to integrate into our practice more deeply in a more profound way and in a, and in a broader way the ideas uh, or the thoughts that turn the mind toward Dharma and the original fundamental foundational ideas of Dharma that have to do with refuge, bodhicitta, devotion, offering, that sort of thing. Recently we had, as uh, many of you know, a retreat concerning the practice of refuge uh, according to our mundro, our foundational practice, and many of us engaged in lots of frustrations and were extremely sore for many days. But we were through it now, and I noticed that when we do prostrations now, we're up and down a little bit faster, so we must be feeling better and getting stronger. It's fun when that happens, when you feel like you can really do it right and, and feel very strong in uh, offering prostrations. So I'd like to continue with the idea of refuge. What I like to do is, as many of you know, I like to climb the same mountain that you like to climb, that mountain of wisdom or understanding, so that we can get to the top and really have the full vista of understanding. But I find that when we are trying to climb a mountain, in order to do it not in a, in a narrow or linear fashion, but to do so in a way that opens up to us true meaning on a conceptual level, that it's a good thing to climb that mountain from every possible angle you could think of. You know, if the mountain is shaped like this, you want to climb it from here and from here and from here and from here, because on each side there will be a different experience of going up the mountain, and one can truly understand the mountain by moving in those various ways as opposed to having only one narrow means of approach. Now, in order to broaden and to deepen then one has to have the intention of really knowing and understanding more deeply how to, how, how to have that intention and how to make it real and focused and meaningful, how, how to have it carry weight in, in one's life. That's what I'd like to talk about today. And in order to do so, I'd like to talk about kind of where we're coming from and how it is different from a culture in which Buddha, uh, Buddha naturally appeared and naturally emanated and naturally gave rise to certain teachings. Uh, Buddha did not appear in Missouri. <laughs> I mean, not in the way that we understand. Uh, Buddha is everywhere in Missouri, actually, in truth, but the, uh, the historical Buddha did not appear in Missouri or Indiana or any of those places that Brooklyn, you know, 
not in the same way. Uh, the original teachings, the path of Dharma that we practice was brought to us by Lord Buddha himself originally. And that truth appeared, first displayed itself in a culture that is very different from ours. So I would like to examine some of the ways in which the culture is different, just briefly. Briefly enough to have a certain idea that we can examine for ourselves. If you think about a child that appears in our Western kind of materialistic culture, and then you think of another child that appears in an Eastern culture, such as uh, maybe uh, East Indian, you know, Indian culture or Tibetan culture, or uh, one of the cultures in which Dharma was a very strong factor, at least some time ago, certainly in India, Dharma was very strong. It's where Dharma actually began. It's where Lord Buddha himself actually appeared. And even if it is not the most uh, potent religion in India now, still it has had some effect on shaping and forming that culture. And there are many factors that have, of course. But here in our America, certainly there are religious factors that have shaped our culture, but they are different. They're different. The best thing to do is to look at these cultures today. If we wanted to go into history, that's certainly doable, but we don't have enough time, and we also, I wonder really how useful that would actually be, somewhat perhaps. But let's look at the cultures today and just, with just an idea as to how they've progressed and where they've come from. Our culture today, here in America, is materialistically oriented. We are, of course, we know this, a culture of attainers. We attain things. We, we, we accumulate things. We are accumulators. And we are given this definition of success that is handed down from generation to generation. And oddly enough, it has more to do with substance than it has to do with spirit. More to do with material gain or loss, those factors, than it ever has to do with joy. Joy. Well, what a concept. When we are coming up, we are prepared and schooled to accomplish things that have to do with getting stuff. Even if we take, it, let's say we study to become something that seems to be non-materially oriented, materialistically oriented, such as perhaps, I don't know, a social worker, or let's take, for instance, a social worker. That's a good place to start. You would think that a social worker would, would, would be looking at our culture with different eyes. You would think that a social worker would be saying, well, you see, what are these social factors, how to organize them into something that is meaningful and deep for us, how to express within our culture uh, the, the, the gamut of human expressions, how, how to integrate it, how to make it work for us, how to discard those things that do not work for society. And yes, that is some of the training of a, of a social worker. But why does somebody become a social worker and how do we approach that kind of thing? Well, we approach it from the idea of we always think about, well, how's the job market? You know, when I get out of school after I learn all this, will I really be able to get a job? And we think of ourselves as having an office. And we think of ourselves as having a little square on the office that says, you are somebody. 
And then <clears throat> we think about whether that will be a really profitable um, occupation <clears throat> to involve oneself in. So even if we were to approach something that could by its nature be fundamentally non-materialistic, we approach it from a materialistic point of view. That's one thing that is interesting and unique about our culture. And you don't notice that this is true. It's actually invisible. It is so all-pervasive that it's invisible. And you don't really notice it until you go to other places. So if you really want to learn something about your culture, leave it and come back. Mainstream America, if they, if they do not have that kind of experience, cannot really see what the factors are very well. It, it's more difficult. And so to leave the culture and to have another taste or another experience gives one a sense of comparison. We approach everything in a collecting or accumulating way, in a materialistic way. We measure success by material substance. Even nobody's parent tried to raise a great mystic. <laughs> because you wouldn't do that to your kid in our society. You know? You, you see what I'm saying? You want to prevent your kid from uh, the dark night of the soul. You want to pre prevent your kid from the kind of ambiguous, kind of, you know, vague, cloudy, uncharted waters of mysticism. You want your kid to be on a straight and narrow. They know where to get a loaf of bread. They know how to put some butter on it. They know how to eat it. They know how to feed it to their kids. You know how to buy a car, that kind of thing. You want, your, you want your kid to be prepared for that. You do not raise a mystic. A mystic is something you have to contend with in our society. Uh, it is, a, um, uh, it is a, 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 an avocation that is fraught with suffering. Now, why is that? Well, partially because one goes into a very deep sense of connection, and in order to do that, one has to plow through issues or plow through whatever it is that one plows through. You know, that's stuff. But the other reason why being a mystic is so darn painful is because no one has any respect for that kind of thing. I mean, a mystic in our society probably is a dreamer, or a ne'er-do-well, or maybe depressed. Possibly should be on Prozac. <laughs> Can't dress. Has no sense of style whatsoever. Is socially inappropriate. Can't figure out how to catch a cab. These are all of the things that we associate with that kind of life. And so nobody's ever been encouraged to be like that. And, and, and it scares the patooties out of us. The idea of really profound, deep mysticism. But in another culture, perhaps, where it is possible, where, where that kind of ideal is held up as being something pure, something wonderful, something significant. Well, one's experience regarding mysticism is entirely different. There is a dignity and nobility about it. There is a sense that that is a worthwhile occupation. And perhaps there is less fear. In fact, definitely there is less fear of utilizing one's life, of having the freedom, I have to say, to utilize one's life as a vehicle for true, deep mysticism and spirituality. 
And one of the reasons why it's more comfortable and easier to get connected to is because one isn't necessarily socially ostracized. Now, the great thing about being a mystic in America is that once you get to the point where you're really good at it and somebody finds you and you can market it, maybe write a book or two, you know, maybe, maybe sell something that you've, you know, given rise to, then you can be a success. Mystics can be successful after they're dead also in our society. I, I don't know why. I really don't know why. Any of you that know why, tell me, because that one I don't know. But while we're alive, we don't have too much hope. So how does this affect our sense of personal practice, our sense of taking refuge? I mean, how, how does that connect with all of that? We find ourselves in a difficult situation where we are really limited and we can't see where the limitation is coming from. In how deep we can quest or search and how profoundly we can make that connection between the external environment, between the ordinary view and one's deepest, most intimate spiritual nature. We feel somewhat limited as to how we can make that connection. Let's look again at some factors that are important. And these are, these are really important. Think of how we follow religion in our country. For the most part, here in the West, religion is one of the many things that you should have in order to live a moral life. It's, it's part of the palette of a moral life. But it may not be the basis of a moral life, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Many of the people that are deeply, deeply religious, according to our society's capacity, have adapted their religion from their upbringing. But the way that they've adapted their religion from their upbringing is that somehow they got the message that in order to be, in, that part of that big successful materialistic picture is that you also have to maintain a certain status quo concerning moral, ethical, and spiritual issues. It isn't your heart. Now, you wouldn't want that because that's that flaky stuff, you know. I mean, it's really hard to have all that you're supposed to have if this religious thing is so in your heart that it is your heart, that it speaks to you every minute, that all of your decisions are based on what you know to be true spiritually. Not much chance you're going to be the big accumulator, your parents hope that you would, if you go like that. So religion is tamed. It becomes insipid. It becomes the thing that we do as part of the whole picture of who we are. But it does not really nourish us in the way that we want to. And we end up blaming the religion. Or the minister. Or the teacher. Or the prayers. Or something. 
But our religious spiritual picture is not empowered, is not deepened. Not in the way that would set us on fire. I don't mean in a fanatical way. I mean in a way where we are never very far from what feels like spiritual truth, from what we know to be good, from what we know to be deep and meaningful. It is very difficult for us in this culture to maintain that. We are told, for instance, that uh, in order to be a good person, you have to do a certain amount of church-going. Now, that church-going idea is deadly. It's really the antithesis of a spiritual path. And I find that here as well, that here our sangha also plays church. We do church-going. Whenever I see one of us do church-going, I feel like taking out a lead pipe and start beating people down. I don't know what to do. It drives me nuts. That church-going thing. When we come here, you know, on the proper days, you know, Sunday, and then a retreat, and maybe when we have a class on Wednesday night, when we used to do that all the time, and we'll come here looking like, well, I'm here, it's Sunday, and I'm fulfilling my spiritual obligation. We look all spiritual and fulfilled. And we say the nice things, and we have that expression. You know that church expression? <laughs> you know, like we never have a bad thought. Well, like Butter wouldn't melt in our mouths when we go to church. So that's, you know, that's the, the church-going thing. And that, that kind of idea of going to church in that way is deadening and disempowering. It's a very destructive way to approach our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is something that requires no church, requires no temple. It is an ongoing, internal, profound experience to which we have to marry. And again, not marry simply because we've come of age, which many of us do but marry because we are truly wed in our hearts and our minds with a deeper kind of friendship and understanding regarding our spiritual path than we've ever known before. What what is it? What is the missing link? What causes us to shunt ourselves off in that direction and absolutely create a scenario whereby we either don't relate deeply to our path or it is un- it cannot nourish us. Or we find ourselves feeling dead inside. How, how does that happen? One of the things you have to remember is that, I've I've said this again and again and again, but it's really important to think about. It is more and more prevalent in our modern society, but particularly in our country, the level, our technological level, and the, the level of our, of all the civilizing factors that have come together to make us what we are, this level of sophistication, makes it impossible for us to see some of the natural currents of life. For instance, here we are so technologically advanced and removed 
from certain natural occurrences that we rarely have the opportunity to see, to actually see the beginning of life carried all the way through to the end of life. Unless we ourselves have had a baby and daddy went into the birth giving room and mommy had a mirror. You know, unless we do that, birth to us is a mystery. We do not see what birth looks like. We have pictures of it. We may have seen a movie, but the direct experience, visual, hearing, touch, taste, smell, all of it, we never have that experience. And, and for most of us that are parents, even, even though we ourselves have had this experience, we somehow are absent from it because many people do not have a, a real direct experience of their own birth giving. They go to sleep during it, or they're drugged, or something like that. Neither do we have an experience of dying. Well, when we ourselves die, we will have that experience, but until then, it's, pretty, it's hidden from us. It's hidden from us. We have no way to prepare ourselves for the rea reality of death in our society. We have no way to understand what is gained and what is lost during a life. The experience of watching someone actually die is an interesting experience because you can see that everything material is left behind. And you have a sense, once that consciousness has left, has moved on, has left the body, there is a really distinct feeling between what the body was like, even if it was unconscious, and at the door of death, and what it's like after consciousness has actually left. Quite different. Any of us who have seen loved ones immediately after their death will know this. You know that there's nothing in there. Unless you're completely out to lunch, which I've also seen. But we, you can see that there's nothing there, that it's something essential has left, but that everything material has been left behind. And it's such an eye-opener. Particularly if the person who has died is perhaps not very old. Perhaps they're too, they're, they're still, they were still in life connected to the point in their life where they took a, a great deal of pride and, um, you know, about their body, or were really, uh, they were, were thinking of themselves as very vital, or uh, perhaps you remember different things about the person. You might remember that the person had a struggle, a struggle, the person who died had a struggle with, let's say, some sickness, or, oh, better yet, something cosmetic. Let's say this person uh, didn't like their figure, felt that they were too fat. Maybe you know that during the person's life they obsessed about this and that it made them feel really bad and it was really horrible and they tried to do things about it and they couldn't do things about it. And then you see that person die. And then after that, when the consciousness leaves, you realize that everything they struggled with, it doesn't matter. Whether that body was fat or skinny, it didn't go with them. They, this is a, it be, an understanding of how superficial that struggle is occurs when you naturally see the rhythms of life and death. Do you see what I'm saying? There is a natural understanding that no one else can teach you. You have to see it yourself. Plus, to understand what we are, it's good to see a number of babies being born. Um, nurses in hospitals who have to deal with babies right after they're born 
can tell you this for sure. If you've ever worked in pediatrics or the neonatal unit, babies are different when they're born. They are not blank slates. Some babies are very aggressive and very active, and they have, you can tell, they have tiny little confrontative personalities already. <laughs> and they're just that way. And then other babies are just wide-eyed and open. They're like little jellyfish. I mean, my two sons were polar opposites when they were born and throughout their whole lives. That they haven't killed each other yet is a wonderful thing. <laughs> but it's not too late, I'm sure. <laughs> but they've always been polar opposites. And uh, from the first moment they were born. I mean, a mother that's had more than one child can tell you that's how it is. So these natural things, many of us are completely separated from. But they teach us. They teach us very profound things about how to approach spirituality. In a non-materialistic society, in the society where Dharma was actually nurtured, born and nurtured, and even the story about the Buddha indicates this, where the Buddha at first was prevented by his father from being able to see any kind of suffering of old age, sickness and death, and then suddenly found the strength to go on in his path after having witnessed that because of compassion because of the deeply felt recognition that occurred to him on some subtle level. Our society, that's like a metaphor for the problem of our society. Do you see that? It's really a metaphor. What a display Lord Buddha gave us when he showed us that. Because we are, on a couple of different levels, prevented from seeing what our society is like. On a... On a on a larger level, our society works towards preventing us from seeing that suffering. They take the dead bodies away and they fix them up. They put makeup on them. Can you believe that? I want all my makeup on my body before I die. <laughs> I do not want someone to put it on after I'm dead. All of you can remember this? Okay, thank you. <laughs> That is not the time for a facelift. <laughs> Plus, on an internal level, because of these subtle messages that we get, we do not come in contact easily with any real internal processes. We avoid them in the same way we are taught to avoid them externally. We're told, that don't go there, it's not safe. Just don't go there. We are told really not to approach things in this really intimate way. Now, in the story about Lord Buddha's life, when he saw the suffering, well, yeah, it bothered him. <laughs> well, yeah, it hurt. Well, yeah, he was upset. Well, yeah, he was scared. Well, yeah, it was shocking. Well, yeah, he had to, oh my God, go through transformation. That, that T word that scares us so much, transformation, it's related to change, the other word that scares us real, real bad. So yes, he had to go through all of that. But what was the result? The result was he became deeply empowered. Deeply empowered. To where he made some very difficult choices. He decided not to live an ordinary life in which he was extremely happy. He was a prince with all the blessings. 
He had a beautiful and devoted wife. They were very close, very intimate. He had a beautiful child, newborn. And yet, even though these things moved him, and the story tells us that he was not a distant or absent or unconnected person in all of that. He loved his family. He loved his greater family as well, his father and mother, the king and queen. But he saw this suffering. For the first time, he saw this old age, sickness, and death. And it moved him to his core and enabled him to make choices that are very difficult. He actually came to the point of deep knowing within himself where if he wanted to really love his wife and his baby, then he had to find the way to liberation for their sake. For their sake became real to him. It's not real to us. It's not real to us. When we approach Dharma, it's interesting, if you think about this, when we come to the temple, we're already interested in Dharma. Why are we interested in Dharma? Well, lots of different reasons. Um, we like the look of it. It's interesting. It's exotic. The statue thing is really cool. Colors are nice. Um, we have a sense, we have a feeling, like a concept of what Buddhism looks like. It looks like people who are sitting very straight in those wonderful positions that I wish I could get myself into. And, and you know, we just, it's a, and you know, and the Buddhist eyes look out into space. We have this idea that it's going to be like this. And we see ourselves doing like this, you know? And we think, wow, that is so cool. We have no idea what's going on inside. But from the outside, we're looking at this going, oh man, that is so cool. So when we come to this path, we already have this idea of what it's supposed to look like. And we, and, and we play into that. Once we come here, then we hear the foundational thoughts about Buddhism and the thoughts that turn the mind. We hear these thoughts that turn the mind. And we say to ourselves, here's the, here's the important part. We say to ourselves, oh yeah, those are good reasons to do what I wanted to do already. Which is to sit there like this. Or to be involved in this really exotic thing. Or, or, just to be the coolest kid on the block, because I read all those Buddha books. You know, whatever your reason, I mean, we all have reasons. We feel a certain affinity to it, whatever it is. It may not be a good, I'm making it goofy so that it's fun. But you can see and adapt what I'm saying to your own personal situation. Whereas in another culture, now think about this. The thoughts that turn the mind have to do with understanding cause and effect relationships, Understanding impermanence, understanding that virtuous conduct brings excellent results of happiness and prosperity. Non-virtuous conduct brings lesser and, and then very bad results of either unhappiness or being reborn in lower realms and so forth. These are things that we learn, and once we, we come here and we learn those, those are good reasons to stay on this path. So I'm going to memorize those, and I will learn them. But in another society... That's, we, we know, we grow up with, we see in our own families before we are even able to understand the words of these thoughts, of these teachings that turn the mind towards Dharma. We see our elders die. We see the birth occur. We see 
Nobody has a facelift in Tibet, you know? The wrinkles just pile on. They start and they continue. Unbelievable amounts of them. Because there's no Estee Lauder, which is why I don't live there. <laughs> they don't even have Noxzema. We're talking yak butter. <laughs> so they have no, they, they're, 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 movement through time occurs very naturally. And so when, when, when a person approaches Dharma, they approach Dharma because it does not seem reasonable to do this thing that you're going to do, walk through from birth to death with nothing in your heart, with nothing to work with. You know, it doesn't seem reasonable that that should be the main weight of your experience, that that's what you should take refuge in. Because you could, why would you do that? It's like taking refuge in a car wreck. I mean, it is, you know? It's going to hurt and it's going to get worse. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's something that you see in a different kind of society. But in our society, because we are technologically and intellectually advanced, we are not connected to the rhythms of life. So when this person who is connected to the rhythms of life and has seen it, even as a child, is told everything is impermanent, and they're like, hey, no clue. You know, I saw my aunt. She was very young, and then she was very old, and then she died. I saw my grandmother. You know, you can see it. This is not a big piece of information. This is not a missing piece of the puzzle. It simply organizes the thoughts for a person who has been exposed to a more natural environment. So it organizes the thoughts so that intellectually you can reach for and understand and put words to a conceptual understanding that you already have about what life looks like. You can see that there's some fun in it. You can see that there's some good in it. But you can also see its faults much more easily than we do in our society. Whereas when we hear those thoughts that turn the mind, we have, have so much time invested in staying young, keeping it easy, keeping it light, making it pretty, collecting everything we're supposed to collect, that we really, we have to keep that information outside of us. We can't really let it come into us. In our society, for instance, the, uh, the teachings on old age, sickness, and death, in our, in our society, the idea of, a, of looking at yourself and saying, old age is happening for real. The idea of really defining that and seeing it and understanding it is terrifying. Because in our society, the loss of youth is the loss of love. We don't even value the wisdom that is gained in, in maturity enough to have it even bear mentioning but in other cultures, people have gone through these incredible experiences in a very natural way. Their wisdom at the end of their life, where they have seen themselves age. They have seen the beginning, the promise, the beauty, the joy. They have seen how it matures. And they have seen how you can't take anything with you. There, there was a maturity, a wisdom that comes with that. And in our society, that isn't even valued. 
In fact, it's recommended that we think forever young. Really, now that I've, I'm uh, now that I'm maturing, I, I feel like, why would you want to do that? Young people don't think. <laughs> so think forever young is like that's like military intelligence. <laughs> Can't. So I'm having. In my experience in teaching students, I find that this is the single most dominating factor in their own dissatisfaction with their past. And so now we need to look at why that is. Because, again, in our society, we learn a bunch of rules. These rules are connected to our fundamental material attitude, that collector's attitude. In our society, we feel also separated, alienated, isolated, right? There is a kind of isolation that happens in our society. A feeling of deadness, inner deadness. It's an inner deadness, and I don't know how else to describe it. And if you don't know that inner deadness in yourself, then it's deader than you think. Because you can look in the eyes of anyone you know, and you can see it there. There is an inner deadness. Now, if we approach our spiritual life in that same way, by following these rules that are external, that we ourselves never really view in an an intuitive and intimate way, if they are out there, Because Buddha said them. They're out there. If we feel like that about our spiritual path, we're going to go dead. Just as sure as it can be. We're going to go dead on our path. Because then the path, which is so precious and so unique, that amazing reality which does not arise in samsara, but in fact arises from the mind of enlightenment, and therefore results in the mind of enlightenment, This precious, inimitable thing becomes only one more set of external rules like a girdle that you have to wear in order to be successful, part of our environment, whatever it is that we have set for ourselves. Then the path becomes part of that. And then when the path becomes bigger, which it has to do, the path for you has to become bigger. It has to be part of your life. It isn't something you do twice a week when you come here. These are practices you do every day. These are uh, ethical situations, moral situations that you have to evaluate and and look at for yourself. There is a a coming to grips, uh, uh, connecting with, that has to occur every minute of every day. It's a way of life. It's not really a church thing. You know, and, and once the path becomes big like that, and you find that it has to, as it must, influence everything about you, from blessing your food or offering your food before you eat it, to closing your altar before you go to bed at night, to doing your daily practice, all these, to, uh, to, to thinking about everything you do and reevaluating it. Should I kill bugs? You know, should I, 
should I really actively work towards benefiting others? What, you know, where is, where is uh, prejudice in my life? You know, that kind of thing. All those issues that you have to reevaluate. At some point, if the path is external <clears throat> and you have not <clears throat> come into intimate touch with it, when these things start coming to you as stuff you have to do, it's going to be stuff you have to do. It's not going to be the love of your life. It's not going to excite you. I mean, let's say as part of your path, you have to examine one of the Buddha's teachings. All sentient beings are equal. So that means you have to get, a, you have to get rid of cultural, racial, religious, gender bias. I mean, even species bias. All sentient beings are equal. What could be a more exciting and dynamic process than that? Wow, I mean, think about it. If you really did it right, if you really went inside yourself and found that place where all sentient beings are equal, what if you made that your job to really know that? What if it became something that became so moving and overwhelming that it changed every aspect of your life. What an exciting and dynamic process. How changed you would be. How much more luminous, beautiful, noble your life would be. I mean, amazing. Just by that one little thought. But that's not what we do with the Buddhist teachings. We say... All sentient beings are equal. All sentient beings are equal. All sentient beings are equal. Okay, I, I memorized that. All sentient beings are equal. So that means, I guess that means I can't kill anything. I guess that means that I really have to try to consider all things as equal. It means I'm supposed to think that cockroaches and human beings are fundamentally equal in their nature. I really don't think that way. But it means that I have to remember that as being one of the rules. Rules that are outside, that you don't take responsibility for, that you don't connect with, are deadening. They will kill you. They are bad. Rules that you take in as pieces of information explore deeply and know for yourself are empowering. They give you a sense of living for the first time. I, I remember I went through a process even before I found Buddhism. I went through it quite naturally. I had this experience in a meditation once. I was sitting in front of a stream meditating and I meditated very deeply on my essential nature. This nature that was without discrimination, beginningless, and yet completely fulfilled, was both empty and full, was beyond any kind of discrimination whatsoever. I meditated very deeply on that. And then I found that I couldn't tell where I ended and the water began. And it was this funny kind of, almost like psychological aha, but so much deeper, so much deeper. Like, I am that also. Well, you can't even call it I. It's 
suchness, and it's everywhere. And then I started expanding that to people. And I'm like, wow, amazing. Bugs, you know, any, any living thing, any phenomenal reality that appears external, that nature that I am is just as easily that. You know? And blacks and whites are the same. And my culture and your culture is the same. And this and that's the same. Memorizing that is a deadening experience. Because something inside of you is hidden and unchanged and unmoved. And something inside of you, something outside of you, has been laid on top of it. What is that called? A bash-to-fit, paint-to-match religion. That's what that is. That's what that is. And religion does a lot of that. We do a lot of that with religion. I don't believe it's the fault of the religion. I think if you listen to the original teachers of almost any religion that I know of, it's good stuff. It is ourselves that do not know how to practice religion. And so when we hear the Buddha's teaching, which is such a living, dynamic, eternal, present thing, it is so much alive, if we understand it today, it is as alive in this world today as it was when it was first brought into the world. But if we practice it today, with, with the energy of recognition of intimate association, not happening in this present moment, but happening 2,500 years ago, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It has to be living for you today. It has to be alive for you today. Otherwise, you'll say, well, you know, that religion was brought into the world 2,500 years ago. Things are different now. Well, yeah, so? <laughs> Liberation is not different now. The faults of cyclic existence are not different now. I mean, nothing that matters is different now. Every, all the rules still apply. It's just that we don't understand them on a deep level. Because we haven't invested in feeling and knowing an intimate association with these truths. We are simply playing church. So how to understand that your faith is alive. Well, try being alive in your faith. See, the ball's in your court, and you're not going to get away from that. You cannot change the religion and think that it's going to suit your needs. Because then you're doing something else entirely. You're doing something else entirely. What you're doing then is you're, you've already decided what it's going to look like and how you're going to act. You're on a track, kiddo. You're on a track that is unbendable, unmovable, unadaptable. And you're going to bend things around you to fit that. That kind of philosophy is what has made this world the wonderful place it is today. You cannot 
do that to the world any more than you can do that to yourself. Bash to fit, paint to match, doesn't work. So our job then is to make this faith, this religion, not just like a formalized external thing that's like an exoskeleton, but how to get it in. The only way to get it in is by really understanding it, by really going through the process that empowers you to see what the truth actually is. For instance, we're told that cause and effect is for real. Now, this should be blatantly obvious to us by this time. How old are we? I mean, most of us here are above five years old. But we don't get it. So, Lord Buddha tells us, cause and effect really matter. If you engage in virtuous, um, loving, generous, kind acts, the results will be love, happiness, fulfillment, higher rebirth, all of these kinds of... That, that seems pretty reasonable to me. But if we go through, if we don't go through what it takes to truly understand this on a deep level, we end up approaching this, even this very visible piece of truth, by saying, oh, this is another thing I have to learn. Okay, so, and I've seen my students do this, from my very oldest to the brand new ones. So, okay, it's like this. It's like, um, so from now on, I'm going to do good things, because good things will get good results. Okay, good things will be good. If I do good things, I'm going to be happy. Okay, so I'm going to... All right, so, so let's see now. Okay, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. I will be out of bed by 7.15. Can I get a good thing done by 7.20? Maybe if I... And this is the, the way that we think, you know? It's like, by rote, do you, it's like a, a chicken can do this. <laughs> a chicken can do this. Do you understand that? A parrot that can be learned to talk, that can, can be taught to talk, can do this. To learn these rules. But where is the heart of the parrot? It's <laughs> still pretty much like a chicken. With us, what if we could hear the Buddha's teaching and say, well, this is this amazing wisdom that has come into the world. The Buddha organizes this wisdom and says to us, Virtuous actions produce excellent results. Well, what if we went through the process of really looking at this? What if we really tried to connect the dots? What if we looked at our own life experience? Yeah, it's hard to do. We know that. And the reason why it's hard to do is that in order for you to examine what virtuous conduct looks like and how it relates to results, you have to determine which was virtuous conduct and which was non-virtuous conduct. In order to do that, you have to face some terrible truths about yourself, that you don't always engage in virtuous conduct. The minute we get near that sucker, we back off fast. Because isn't it the point of religion to make us feel better? Well, yeah, if it's an opiate. Well, yeah, if it's a drug one of your many drugs. Religion can be compared more to exercise. You know, in a sense, 
if you think about it, when you first, nobody first, the, when we first start to exercise, um, especially today, and sort of how we approach it nowadays, we join a club. And we join a club and we get an outfit. I have some killer workout outfits. I want you to know that. We get an outfit and everything matches, the socks, the headband, you know. And or, or else we sort of jock out about it, you know. Maybe everything doesn't match, but it's all cool, you know. And, and then we get in there, and we never get in there. We don't work out. We don't exercise because it feels good to lift vast amounts of weight over and over again. Not at first. In, first, in fact, at first there's a lot of pain. I mean, you know, you get on those machines, and you start doing this, and you're on the next day, and you're like, I can't move. So the starting this process is never feeling good. But what happens is, afterwards, when you're in shape, and your body's tuned up, and you're strong, you feel great. It's sort of an organic thing, you know? It sort of, it sort of, it benefits all your systems. It sort of comes up from inside of you. It changes everything about your life. It feels great. But initially, no. In order, and that's when most people stop with that initial stuff, don't they? That's when they stop. The minute it doesn't feel good, they stop. Well, we do the same thing with religion. This is exactly the same. Can you see that? We go into it with an outfit, you know? And, and, and we do it until it's a little uncomfortable. We have to change. We have to change something about our lives. We have to see something. And then we're like out of there. Because we, don't, we have the don't want us. You know, we, it, we don't want to. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. I thought it was going to make me happy, and it really doesn't. It's kind of depressing to think about reality. <laughs> so I don't want to. But let's say like the person who, who moves into exercise, let's say moves into making exercise part of their lives. They do it in a more, it's like a more directly related way. You learn something about it. You learn something about the physiology, physiology of exercise. You learn that there are certain problems your body has that it doesn't have when you exercise. Well, that's one thing that will empower you to keep on going. You go for that goal, you know, of producing a certain result. Ever thought of that in your practice? Producing a certain result instead of just putting in your time, there is a difference. And with, you know, with exercise, we get to a certain point where we just begin to see, because we're looking inside of ourselves and we're looking in the mirror. And suddenly we notice that there is some result. And like, whoa, the first time you see result, it can be a life-changing experience if you work to integrate it into your life. Well, it's just exactly like that with religion. Initially, you have to change. Change is not comfortable. We know this. Why reinvent the wheel? We already know this. So initially, you change, and then after that, you begin to connect the dots. You begin to see some cause and effect relationships. You begin to see that virtuous behavior actually does make you feel pretty good. Feels kind of good, you know? And you explore that. You don't take it for granted like a big dope. You explore that. You work it out in your mind. Work the numbers. Work the equations. What feels good? Does it feel good to be in charge of your own internal pro progress? I think so. I mean, to walk through life and just let life hit you like a truck doesn't feel good to me. I don't want to do that. To walk through life in my practice, knowing in my spirit, in, in my in my heart, 
that I am deeply empowered by this direct, intimate relationship to spirituality. I know what kindness tastes like, you know? I have that. I can see direct results from certain kinds of behavior patterns, behavior changes. I can see it directly in my mind. I feel comfortable. And that's why you see practitioners like uh, Tibetan, for instance, Tibetan monks that come here. How is it they have the same restrictions as our ordained and they are so much more comfortable with it? Why are they so much more comfortable with it? And the lay people as well. So much more comfortable with their lives. Because they have some kind of direct experience that makes it sensible and realistic and reasonable to conduct oneself in a certain way. We have not yet developed that sense. I don't know how many times I can present the same teaching. I've presented the same teaching many different ways. But it's about understanding that really the ball is in your court. It's about having a direct hands-on experience. It's about nobody can tell you how to be a, big go- be a good boy or girl. Aren't you sick of that? I mean, this moralizing stuff has got to go. How about a direct understanding, a natural wisdom, your wisdom, that dry times cannot take away from you, that broken hearts cannot take away from you, that no one else can take away from you, your wisdom. You don't look to anyone else to get it. You did it inside. You got it. You understand the path in a deep way. You are empowered. I'm not talking about ritual empowerment. I'm talking about a deeper, truer kind of empowerment. And how wonderful if we can know that empowerment, that spiritual empowerment deeply within ourselves, to then go through the process of ritual empowerment according to the teaching and know what it's about. It's not just a vase or a bumpa being knocked on your head. I mean, you could do that from now until your head and the bumpa are both flat. And if there is no direct relationship, if it's all academic and intellectual, then it's the same as getting a Ph.D. anywhere or some degree. It could be in cooking or technical sciences. It's not really a path for you. A path is a way you go. You know? And path is not an object that you consume or collect or put in your crock pot and boil all day till it's nice and, you know, till it makes gravy at night. A path is where you are. Where are you then? So what I'm talking about is our carefully considering how to overcome the limitations and confinements of our kind of society, of our kind of culture. How to really overcome that. How to go more deeply. How to have a more direct relationship with our own spiritual nature, 
a real mystical relationship with that nature. And I don't mean just meditating on some sort of internal cartoon circus where you think you're getting messages from the Pleiades or some baloney like that. I mean, maybe you are, I don't know, but I wouldn't count on it. If you had a real direct relationship with your own nature, and you really understood the wisdom and the beauty of the Buddhist teaching, and didn't see it as his teaching, you see? but saw it as a wisdom that appeared in the world here, but it is my teaching. It is what I know. I can relate. I see this. There is a wisdom here that you can connect with. Actually, you know, we here as Westerners have a similar problem to what black Americans have approaching Christianity. Black Americans pray to pretty white Jesus. Not to say that their faith is small. It's not. I mean, I don't know whether they have a problem with it or not. But it must be funny. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know. I try to get that sun turned, but I just can't get it dark enough. But one thing I'm, I think about. I mean, what does it look like seeing a white face on an altar when you're a black person? I'll tell you what it looks like. Go home to your altar and look at all those Oriental faces up there on your altar. They don't look like us. What to do about it? How do you take refuge? What do you really do? How do you connect with it? Because it's not about those pictures. It's not about those faces. It's about you. And it connects inside. It isn't about the shape of the eyes. It's about what those eyes see. So you have to have that completely personal relationship where you look beyond that which is planted or colored or this way or that way. It's got to be a deeply personal relationship. And to do that, one must connect. Deeper than you've ever been before. Because we love to just skate over the surface of our experience of life. That is just so much fun. And we're kind of even addicted to the highs and lows. We just like to do that, you know? Just go along on that. But to really understand why one should take refuge and how to actually take refuge, I'm not really even sure that it can actually truly be taught by just giving us a set of equations or laws or rules. They can only really function as guidelines. It's really up to us to be powerful and strong and noble and knowing and awake on our path. Virtue cannot be collected. It has to be experienced, tasted, understood. Its nature must be understood. And this is not the news we want to hear. We want an easy religion. Give us, just tell us the ten things we have to do. 
so we can, you know, so, so that we're not uncomfortable about dying. So give us those ten things we have to do. And I'm not saying those ten things are bad. They're good. They're wonderful. But where does it leave you? Aren't you still the same scared little kid who was so neurotic because they are compressed with rules and society and we're being told we can't feel things and we have to feel them this way and we're all squished. You know? And now we're going to do this with our religion too. Ten more times. <laughs> what if instead... Instead of being a, a girdle that makes us be out of touch, just trying so hard to be good, you know, just trying so hard to do the right thing, but out of touch, and instead experienced our path, our method, as something that We understood in a, in a wise way, in a wisdom way, in a, in a connected way, on, in an in-touch way. And from that fertilization, you know that happens? When you really understand an idea. And it causes you to go, oh-ho, therefore, from that point of view, it's like a plant or a tree coming up inside of you and growing it bears fruit. It is a joyful thing. You know? It, and, and you can see the fruit of your life. And most of us are so unhappy and so neurotic because we cannot see the fruit of our life and we do not understand its value. We haven't tasted it. But this direct relationship one can taste. And it needs to be like that in order for us to really take refuge, and not be lost little kids, scared of dying, just trying to do the right thing, be good boys and good girls with a, with a new set of rules. Because maybe if we just had a new set of rules, maybe then we'd be good. Instead of that, what if we were dynamically in love, inspired, breathing in and out on our path? The path can be, in that way, a companion. A joyfulness, a child of yours, a creation, a painting. You know? Something beautiful you've done with your life. And you can't make a beautiful painting by number. You have to make a beautiful painting from your heart. So ask yourself, where are you? If you find that deadness inside of you, don't blame your path. Don't blame your teacher. Don't blame your society. Don't blame the Buddha. Instead, Go within and find what is true and meaningful to you.
Work the sums. Reason it out. Lord Buddha himself said, forget blind faith. He said, reason it out. The path should make sense. It should be logical and meaningful to you. Not to me. I mean, you know, what's it going to mean to you if it's meaningful to me? It has to be logical and meaningful to you. This is what the Buddha said. It would really, really help you to try that out for yourself. And for us, in a society where we are separate from some fundamental life rhythms, and where things, we are trained to think that things are happening outside of us. For instance, you know, we, we're in a world filled with terrorism and, and racial abuse, you know, uh, religious abuse, all kinds of conflict. And to us, we think we are living in a world where racial intolerance, for instance, is happening out there. It's happening out there, and we read about it in the paper. No. Racial intolerance is happening in here. That's where it's happening. So it's like that with everything. It's like that with everything on this path. You cannot let it happen out there. Your responsibility, your empowerment, your life. Waiting for someone to tell you how to live it is not going to fly. Walking on a spiritual path that you know, that you have examined, that you have given rise to understanding about, that draws forth your natural innate wisdom, that fills your heart with a sense of truth. Because you understand it, not because someone else does. That's the way to go. And that's what the Buddha recommended. In fact, he said, I've given you the path. Now work out your own salvation. That wasn't just a flip thing. I know when people hear that, they go, God, it's such a cool thing that he said that. He must have had a great sense of humor. He meant it. The path is there, but you've got to work it out. That's how you walk on the path. Otherwise, you're walking alongside the path. Then you're a friend of Dharma, an admirer of Dharma, but not a practitioner. Even if you wear the robes. So, handle the dead zone. Empower yourself. There's no reason why you can't. Don't live your life by, you know, match to fit, paint to match. Don't do that. You are alive. You are alive. In every sense, your nature is the most vibrant. It is the only force in the universe. It is all there is. To play this game of duality where you stand outside your own most intimate experience and simply like a sheep get led through your life. That is not the way to go. And for many of you who came to this path from another path, 
Many of you came from another path for these very reasons, because you felt dead there. But remember this, wherever you go, there you are. You brought the deadness with you. So handle it. So thank you very much. And I hope that you really, really take this to heart, because it's really an important thing. It's a very important thing. If I had one gift that I could give you all, it would be to just stay alive in your, in your path. To have your spiritual life be like a precious jewel inside of you. Living. Something to warm you by. Something that, you know, if, if, if they took everything else away from you, if life took everything else away from you, which it will, eventually. This is the thing that cannot be taken cannot be taken. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.